This week on Cinematic Sound Radio. Today's show is part two of a tribute to one of the finest composers of our generation who would have celebrated his 70th birthday in 2018, the great Michael Kamen. The show will feature music from Band of Brothers, Die Hard 1 and 2, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, The Three Musketeers, The Iron Giant, Open Range and Mr. Holland's Opus. You will also be hearing from Michael Kamen expert, conductor Pablo Urbina, talking about the composer's music, and hearing some unreleased material by kind permission from the Michael Kamen estate for airing exclusively on this show. My name is Jason Drury. Thank you very much for joining me. Sit back, relax, and enjoy more of the musical voice of Michael Kamen as our tribute on Cinematic Sound Radio continues now. On the air and streaming on the web since 1996, this is Cinematic Sound. Hello everyone and a warm welcome to part two of this Cinematic Sound radio special. I am your host, Jason Drury, coming to you from Ramsgate in Kent, England. Hello to our listeners at Movie Schools and More Radio, CinematicSound.net and through iTunes or Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, TuneIn, Google Play, Radio Public and where any other podcast provider is found. It's great to have you join us for the show. And if you're listening to this program through Apple Podcasts, please take the time to rate and review the show. As myself and Eric Woods always keep saying, it really does help get Cinematic Sound Radio noticed. Now today we spotlight again on the life and music of one of my all-time favourite composers, Michael Kamen, who in 2018 would have celebrated his 70th birthday. I have always been a fan of Kamen ever since I heard his score for The Dead Zone in 1983. Michael Kamen was in fact the subject of the second ever radio show I wrote and produced for another station before I found my home on Cinematic Sound Radio. Now that show script has been adapted and updated for this new show, as well as featuring a lot more music than the original programme I produced way back in 2013. Now part one concentrated on Cayman's early works up to the end of the 1980s. Now today's second part will include mainly Cayman scores from the 90s onwards. And as you have heard, much, much more. So here now is part two of Cinematic Sound Radio's tribute to the late, great Michael Kamen.
And that was to start today's show, music from the 2001 TV miniseries Band of Brothers, more of which later. But Band of Brothers happens to be a particular favourite of my guest contributor today, Pablo Urbina. Now Pablo is a young, gifted Spanish conductor who graduated from the Royal College of Music in London and was a semi-finalist of the 2017 Maestro Salty International Conducting Competition and a 2018 nominee for the Nestle and Salzburg Young Conductors Award. Currently, he is the musical director of the London City Orchestra and he has been recently appointed associate conductor at the Al-Bustan Festival in Lebanon from 2019. Shortly after his debut at the Sunni Dalgufi Music Festival in Italy in 2017, he was also appointed associate conductor of the festival. Now, Pablo also serves as an advisor to the estate of Michael Kamen, helping to preserve the composer's musical legacy. How this came about, we will discover later. But this is how he first became interested in the music of Michael Kamen. Michael Kamen was really at, at the peak of his career when I was growing up myself. I was born in 1988, when the year that uh, Die Hard was released. And of course, that was a movie that I grew up with. Back then, I wasn't so much aware of Michael Kamen. But then it was around 2001 that Banner Brothers came out. And at that point, I was 13, 14 years old. And I became really obsessed with the soundtrack. It was a soundtrack that felt very close to my heart for reasons that I did not understand at the time. So I was just an expiring musician. And even though I was studying music, I didn't know as much about music as I do now. So that was the first really big soundtrack of Michael that I became very familiar with. And then, of course, I got to know a little bit more about some of his major hits, like in Die Hard, Lethal Weapon. I first listened to... Robin Hood, not directly through Michael, but through an arrangement that was made by the Vienna Horn Sound. I was a French horn player myself, so that was a CD that I bought when it came out, which included one of the titles being Robin Hood. And then I said, oh my God, this is a great piece of music. I must I must listen to, the, to more of it. So then I, I listened to the original soundtrack and I thought it was fantastic. So I would say that the biggest pieces of music by Michael that I first became very interested in would definitely be Banner Brothers and, and Robin Hood. Robin Hood has always been a hero of Michael Kamen. So when, in 1991, he was asked to score Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, directed by Kevin Reynolds and starring Kevin Costner, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio and Alan Rickman, he jumped at the chance. For preparation, Kamen studied 11th and 12th century music to try and discover the sort of music that Robin Hood would have listened to. But with the producers looking for a traditional Hollywood score with loads of horns, strings and drums, he came up with a stirring work full of ethnic Old English influences. He also found a tune for a song in his archives, which could be used for a love theme. He gave his music to Brian Adams and RJ Lang, and the song Everything I Do, I Do It For You took a life of its own. Released in an extended form by Entrada Records in early 2018, here is music from Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Music composed and conducted by Michael Kamen.
Now Michael Kamen, when starting in movie scoring, preferred to orchestrate his own work exclusively. However, when he arrived in Hollywood, he came up against the timing constraints of writing a film score in that environment. For Winhood Prince of Thieves, he wrote about two hours of music, and to complete the score in time, Kamen ended up using 15 orchestrators. 
The orchestrator count was 12 when he scored the 1993 period action-adventure film The Three Musketeers. Directed by Stephen Herrick, it starred Charlie Sheen, Kiefer Sutherland, Chris O'Donnell, Oliver Platt, Tim Curry and Rebecca De Mornay. Cayman's score has many similarities to his work on Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. It has a hit song performed by Brian Adams, All for Love, this time with Rod Stewart and Sting. And he also provided for the film a highly dramatic score with plenty of action. This time with a slight Baroque influence. All brilliantly recorded by Cayman's regular collaborator, Stephen P. McLaughlin. So now, here is music from Michael Kamen's score to the 1993 film adaptation of the Alexander Dumas classic novel, The Three Musketeers.
Five years earlier, in 1988, Stephen P. McLaughlin produced a Michael Kamen score for an adventure film, this time in a contemporary setting, which would start the second movie franchise that Kamen is fondly associated with, after Lethal Weapon. Thank you. 
Die Hard, directed by John McTiernan, is about a New York cop, John McClane, played by Bruce Willis, who battles terrorists led by Alan Rickman, who hold up the Nakatomi skyscraper on Christmas Eve in an attempt to steal the $640 million of bearer bonds from the company's vault. As an extra incentive, McClane's estranged wife, Holly, played by Bonnie Belida, is among the hostages. For a film which features a lot of suspense, violence and adventure, the director Matinan wanted the music to help create a surprisingly Christmassy feel for the movie. With this in mind, Cayman's score contains sleigh bells and other festive musical references, including the song Winter Wonderland. Matinan also asked Cayman to utilise Beethoven's Ode to Joy as a theme for the terrorist stroke robbers. At first, Cayman thought this was sacrilege. I will make mincemeat of Wagner and Strauss for you. But why Beethoven? he asked. He was then reminded by Matinan how the tune was used by director Stanley Kubrick in the classic film A Clockwork Orange. Finally, Cayman, also a fan of Kubrick, agreed, and Old to Joy appears throughout the score with a payoff when the terrorist finally break into the vault. Clockwork Orange influence is also there with Cameron's use of the song Singing in the Rain, again used in the classic Kubrick film. Now Cameron's score for Die Hard is heard at times in scenes where it was not intended. A good example of this is for the scene regarding Gruber's death, which uses the exciting cue under the table from Midway Fuda film, and then scores the aftermath with two cues from the temp track. One from Man on Fire by John Scott, the other from Aliens by James Horner, rejecting Cayman's approach completely to those scenes, which would have given greater significance to the cue seeing Holly from the start of the film, in a manner that would have bookended his score with this theme. So now, first, you will hear how Hans Gruber's death was scored in the final film, using an edit of the cue under the table. Then you will hear how Michael Kamen scored the ending to Die Hard. From Gruber's death to its aftermath, released for the first time on the 2018 30th anniversary free disc set from La La Land Records. Listen particularly to the end of the cue when you actually hear Kaywin scoring Holly punching reporter 
Dick Formberg, played by William Atherton.
Cayman's work on Die Hard stands out as a high point in action movie writing and at times evokes memories of the disaster movies of the 1970s, like The Towering Inferno, for which the film is partly inspired. But how did the Cayman sound come about which made him the reluctant king of action film scoring in the 80s and 90s? Conductor Pablo Urbina. Michael was a pioneer on this concept of linking more popular music, pop rock style with with classical music. And I think this is perhaps why he was so successful in the action segment of film around the 80s and 90s, when, of course, we still didn't have the different different type of sound that we have today with that kind of movies that is a bit more cinematic. You can call it playing with sounds and that kind of stuff. And, And now, you know, we take it for granted. I think that this is also something that Michael pioneered very much himself, you know, with the use of the, the curse vial and, and synthetic sounds. We, we forget now that Michael was a, a man ahead of his age at the time, that he was very much in loop with technology. He was one of the, the developers of, of the Sibelius software that now everyone uses for music notations. He was one of the first pioneers. He was a avid representative of Apple. And I think all those things contribute to his sound. Michael brilliantly achieved a very successful sound with not too much ornament, simple melodies that really get directly to your heart. And I think for me, that is the essence of music. Melodies and harmonies that don't have to be complicated, but that is brilliantly add to the net of the music and the net of the film and that add uh, expression and add emotion. And I think that he really did that brilliantly. And to encompass so much emotion with so very little is very difficult. And, and you have to have a great mind and a great musicianship to be able to achieve that. And, and I think he definitely successfully did so. So I think that is something that is very unique to his sound and it will continue to be so. And I think it will have been very interesting to see how Michael will have developed his sound to fit in today's age and, and the, the way that music is moving. And, and, you know, a lot of people theorize, you know, that Maybe Michael will not have been doing so much mainstream films if he had stayed with us longer, you know, to this day, because he was moving into a different direction with the the projects that he was undertaking. He was exploring even more the collaboration between the classical world and the pop world, and who knows where it would have taken, but for sure I think that those three qualities, the interdisciplinary pop and classical, the, the uniqueness of the simplicity and yet beauty of his music and and the incorporation of electrical aspects so early on is it's a big component of his unique sound. Here now is another example of Michael Caine's mastery in action scoring from the sequel to Die Hard, 
Die Hard 2, Die Harder from 1990. Here John McClane is again trapped in a difficult situation. This time his wife is on an aeroplane circling Dulles Airport in Washington when terrorists take over the landing system and black out the airport. As the airport authorities seem to challenge his every move, John must defeat the terrorists and allow the planes to land before they run out of fuel. The school's tour de force comes at its climax with two cues. Fight on the wing and fight on the wing continues. Lasting over 10 minutes in length of pulse-pounding tension. Dominated by heavy-duty percussion, teamed with sweeping woodwinds and strings, deliberately bringing memories of Bernard Herrmann's work with Alfred Hitchcock. Here now is a suite from Die Hard 2, featuring those cues, as well as Cameron's use of Sibelius's Finlandia, utilised in a similar way that he used Beethoven's Ninth in the original Die Hard.
Kamen returned to score Die Hard with a Vengeance in 1993 before Marco Beltrami took over scoring duties from Die Hard 4 onwards. As I said earlier, Pablo Urbina serves as an advisor to the estate of Michael Kamen, helping to preserve the composer's musical legacy. Now, how did this come about? When I was still studying at the Royal College of Music here in London and doing my master's degree, I created a film orchestra, uh, me and uh, co-founded with, uh, with composer Danny Howard. And first thing we did was we asked the students, can you t- tell us what would you like to play? You know, what are your favorite pieces of music? And very much to my surprise, almost it was only him and, and John Williams that, that had more than one track in the, in the top 10, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves and, and Barney Brothers. So that, that got me thinking, OK, well, let's get the, the show going. So we started talking to the librarian at the college, point us in the right direction of the publishers. It was my surprise to realize that none of Michael Kamen's music was in any of these publishing entities. Being stubborn and fixated, I persevere and persevere until we got the email of Mrs. Kamen, of, of Sandra Kamen. And so I emailed her, I explained a bit of the situation, and, and she was absolutely lovely. That you wouldn't expect someone of her status and her persona to be so approachable, so friendly, and, and immediately welcome us into her house to, to show us the collection that was available. And this was early 2013. And the, this massive amount of music, it was overwhelmingly huge. And you know, everything was there. You had most of the stuff that, that you could think of. You know, you had uh, Band Brothers, uh, Robin Hood, you know, it was, so, it was amazing, you know, amazing to watch for a conductor, you know, to see all these scores, to see manuscripts. So it was it was a treat. It was like being uh, on Disneyland. And I remember then that they said, okay, this is, that is definitely something here to be done because it is not okay that his music is not available. So we did two things, you know, myself as a conductor, I, we started incorporating some of his pieces in, into some of the concerts of this newly created film orchestra. I think it was our second concert. We did Robin Hood and we did Banner Brothers already back then. And the composers, Danny Howard and George Scott, they, they started coming to the house and myself when I had the time to look at some of the music because Mrs. Heyman was very open to say if the composers from the Royal College want to, to utilize this opportunity to study Michael's music, be, be my guest. And we felt very fortunate to have that access to the music. And then the idea came to organize a tribute concert when it was going to be the, the 10th anniversary of Michael's passing on November 2013, a, a wholly dedicated concert of this Royal College of Music Students Film Orchestra just for Michael. And it was hard to put all the music that we wanted to do. Throughout that whole year, you know, which was my last year at the Royal College, we continued to, to be involved with the state and doing some research. I actually did my whole dissertation for my master's project on Michael Kamen. I dissected his music in great detail as a musician and as in more in a musical theoretical point of view, looking more at the actual music. So I just became more and more involved and it, it sort of became, I think, as some, it was a natural progression. I, when I was finishing my studies, I wanted another career of a conductor so I was looking for some other musical endeavors that would, would allow me to pursue this career and it just became a natural progression for me to start overseeing the collection of music and in that I'm, I must say I'm eternally grateful to the Cayman estate and, and particularly to Mrs. Cayman and, uh, and both of her daughters, to uh, Zoe and Sasha, for the trust that they put on me to oversee this project that was basically trusting with his musical legacy to see how it is that we could bring it to more to the foreground and to make it more available. And in the process, I've learned so much about music. I've learned so much about the industry of film music that I'm sure it will be very handy in the future. That is nothing but for me to treasure for for years and years and, and forever in my in my career. I've had access to some of the music of Michael that not everyone has had access to. And, and of course, I've, I've been able to really experience his most original work. I'm referring particularly to, to 
to some of his earlier work uh, before he even dove into the world of film music when he was writing ballets for music, you know, he did 12 ballets and, and that is a huge amount of body of work and well, some of them started even when he was still involved with the New York Rock and Roll Ensemble and then he took it to a, to a whole different level. There's three of his ballets that I think are remarkable. One is uh, Rodin Miss and B that was commissioned with choreographer Marcus Appington and the Hardness Ballet, which no longer exists in New York and, and that piece of work, which we know because records and interviews with his family and, and other people, we know that that was one of his most loved pieces of, of work. Is that a ballet that actually no, no many people have heard? And I've heard the music countless times because we have them in our archives. I've seen the original DVD with the production, so I know how it looked, not just how it sounded. And I think it's a wonderful mastery of writing uh, for someone that back then didn't really have training on orchestration. He, he was very open to say that he trained on the job. He was a brilliant musician. So that ballet is definitely one of them. There's another ballet that is a particular favorite of mine, which is called Eagle's Nest. And he he did this ballet for la, the Teatro La Scala de Milan uh, as a commission with choreographer Luis Falco, which was a wonderful choreographer that uh, sadly left us many years ago due to illness. The interesting thing perhaps about these earlier works of Michael is that it really shows a lot of his his influences and, and the people that he admired as, as composers. You might be drawn to think that, well, he was a really big fan of Beethoven or a big fan of Sibelius because he included those cues directly into his soundtracks. But actually, we know for a fact that some of his biggest inspirations were, in fact, Bach. Every morning he would play some Bach on the piano and he, he just loved and, and appreciated his input to the, the world of Western classical music. But he really treasured the way that he developed uh, line and, and melody and, and contrapuntal motifs. And you really can see this on his earlier ballets. Um, you can also see a distinct influence on his writing from Stravinsky, which he very much looked up to as a composer and an orchestrator. And, and you really can see hints of, of that admiration and that aspiration in, in these ballets, uh, particularly in Eagle's Nest. You see a lot of passages that really resemble Stravinsky's writing, but with a, with a complete individual sound of Michael Kamen, but with that touch of orchestration and, and utilization of instrumentation that, that it was very Stravinsky-like. And, and finally also, you know, a great admiration for a melody and line that was driven by, by Puccini. He was a, a very big lover of Puccini's music, and you really get to see that throughout his music, of course, but particularly in the ballets. So I would say that on top of Bano Brothers, Robin Hood, these ballets, uh, Eagles Nest, Rodamis and B, and, and thirdly, another one called Under the Sun. I think those are pieces of Michael's work that truly stand out to me. So here now, with kind permission from the Michael Kevin estate, it's a sample of some unreleased music from three of the 12 ballet scores written by Michael Kamen, composed a few years before he first appeared on a film scoring stage. Firstly, this is from 1975, entitled Juice.
Now a clip from his 1980, Eagle's Nest. You can see a bit of, uh, they're not direct quotes, but, but take inspiration of, uh, for example, again, if we take Under the Sun, I remember the first time that we had just digitized the material that we, we found because it's been a, a great research effort of mine to, to rescue these ballets and to digitize them so that we can have them and one day hopefully present them to the, to the rest of the world, which I think will be uh, of great interest to film music fans and, and classical music as a whole. I remember I was listening to the first time, you know, the Under the Sun, and then at some point I suddenly go, oh my God, that sounds just like the, the main titles of, of 101 Dalmatians. And indeed, you know, they take very much similarity on, on that theme, so it's the, especially on the orchestration way. You also can hear a bit of Rodin Miss and B on the score of Die Hard. Um, Die Hard 2 It's not a direct quotation But I think You know Die Hard is, is you, the, more, the more you understand Michael's Influences And experience And evolution As a, comp- a composer You more 
get to see the direct links in between his music. So you really see a direct link in between his influence from Nestrobinsky that then is, is driven into this piece, Rodamis and Lidis Ballet. And then you get to see a very similar writing in Die Hard. So actually you see the direct influence in the scores like Die Hard, you know, that, that you say, wow, how did he come up with that intricate yet not disturbing piece of music in this cue for Die Hard that is just mastery of, of writing, but not too much so that it, it blurs the, the cinematic action. So he, he did take inspiration of the ballets, of course, it's, it's only natural that because um, he was that was the most experimental point probably of his career where he was starting to develop his own unique voice as a composer. My sincere thanks to the Michael Cameron estate for allowing me to play both clips here on Cinematic Sound Radio's tribute to Michael Kamen. Now, towards the end of the 1990s, action films were slowly starting to be phased out from the assignments chosen by Michael Kamen. This was confirmed when his score for the Sylvester Stallone thriller Assassins was rejected and replaced by a score by Mark Mancina. With less action scores on the agenda, Kamen looked for projects from other genres for work, as well as films such as the sci-fi horror film Event Horizon, where he collaborated with Orbital, and the Disney film 101 Dalmatians for the Three Musketeers director Stephen Herrick. He scored his first animated feature, The Iron Giant, in 1999, based on a story by the former poet laureate Ted Hughes and written by Brad Bird, who would later start working with Pixar, starting with The Incredibles. The film is about a young boy who befriends a giant robot from outer space that a paranoid government agent wants to destroy. As the film was set during the Cold War, the temp score used old Bernard Herrmann film scores of the 1950s and 60s. Cameron and Bird wanted this old-fashioned sound for the music. Scouring Eastern Europe, Cameron came upon the Czech Philharmonic Orchestra in a concert hall built for Dvorak and produced a sound that, in Cameron's words, was the reason why orchestras were invented. Well, Bernard Herrmann, of course, being one of the greatest uh, composers, there is of that very dark yet not too muddy sound that Bernard Herrmann was an expert to. And, and as a matter of fact, I mean, Michael Kamen himself referred to in an interview about Iron Giant, which you can see on YouTube. He talks about that the type of sound, you know, the Bernard Herrmann sound that, that I think he really much liked and that he kind of went for the Iron Giant, the, the beginning sequence, the, the Eye of the Storm. And that was one of the reasons why he chose for the place to record that soundtrack. He went to Prague with the Czech Philharmonic because he was after that type of dark sound that Bernard Herrmann sounds. So definitely an influence there as well, I, I, very certainly. Here now is a suite from the Iron Giant, performed by the Czech Philharmonic Orchestra.
Cameron would return to the Czech Republic in 2003 to score the Kevin Cosner-directed western Open Range. The film also starred Cosner, with Robert Duvall, Annette Benning, Michael Gambon and Michael Jetta. The film was about a former gunslinger forced to take up arms again when he and his cattle crew are threatened by a corrupt lawman. The score was due to be recorded in London, but the venue was changed as Cosner was wary of travelling there due to the ongoing Gulf War. That said, the Czech Philharmonic again did not disappoint, and Cameron on this score was able to collaborate with his cousin, Juliana Rain, for the theme song. Here is the suite of music from Michael Cameron's score to Open Range.
The turn of the millennium gave Cayman more interesting projects to work on. Apart from Open Range, he scored the first X-Men movie in his usual dramatic style in 2000. He reunited with Terry Gilliam for Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, the biopic about writer Hunter S. Thompson. And on television in 1998, he scored the miniseries From the Earth to the Moon. And in 2001, he scored another miniseries, Band of Brothers. Based on Stephen E. Ambrose's 1992 non-fiction book, Band of Brothers, an executive produced by Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks, with a cast headed by Damien Lewis. The series dramatises the history of Easy Company, 2nd Battalion, 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment of the 101st Airborne Division, from jump training in the United States through their participation in major actions in Europe in World War II, from Operation Overlord to VE Day. The events are based on Ambrose's research and recorded interviews with Easy Company veterans. Scoring 10 hours of music was a mammoth task for Cayman. In a similar fashion that John Williams tackled Saving Private Ryan, Cayman decided not to score any of the battle sequences, leaving the horror of combat to speak for itself, and concentrated on the reflective moments, pondering the human cost of what had just transpired on screen. Like Williams' work, Cayman's music for Band of Brothers had found a new life away from the screen in the concert hall and at war remembrance services across the world. Here now is more music from the 2001 classic World War II miniseries, Band of Brothers, performed by the London Metropolitan Orchestra.
In September 2003, while receiving a reward at a fundraiser for the National Multiple Sclerosis Society in California, Kamen publicly revealed that he too was a sufferer. He was working on adapting his work on two of his scores into stage musicals and still busy scoring films when suddenly, on November 18, 2003, at his London home, Michael Kamen died of a heart attack at the age of just 55 years old. After receiving her Oscar for her best original song for Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King in February 2004, Andy Lennox dedicated the award to Kamen's memory. His final two completed scores, the last of the 116 he was credited for in his career, First Daughter and Back to Gaia, were also dedicated to his memory. Michael Kamen was a man whose charm and charisma and an infectious laugh managed to get the best out of a wide range of musicians. He regarded conducting his scores as a pleasure he reserved just for himself. Most of his scores recorded in America were performed by Hollywood session musicians. And if they had no name for the ensemble, Cayman made up one. Here's are the only scores performed by the Los Angeles All-Stars Orchestra. He was a film composer who relaxed playing keyboards at gigs for Eric Clapton and Pink Floyd. Michael Cayman was a unique composer. To have such success in so many forms of music is an achievement that no one will ever come close to emulating. What was his inspiration? The answer to that appears on the credits to all his film soundtracks and works he composed. It was all done for his wife Sandra and his daughters Sasha and Zoe. And with that we now come to the end of this Cinematic Sound Radio tribute to the great Michael Kamen. Firstly, I must thank Cinematic Sound Radio affiliates, the Movie Scores and More Radio Network, who can be found at moviescoreradio.com. Feel free to reach out to Cinematic Sound Radio by emailing at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. And don't forget to visit cinematicsound.net to hear an archive version of this show and many years of previous Cinematic Sound Radio programming as well. The show is also on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. And if you are listening to us through iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please, if you can, take the time to rate and review the show. I would also like to thank Tim Burden for providing his voice on Cinematic Sound Radio's intro music, Derek Cosina for writing Cinematic Sound Radio's intro music, and the piece called Memory, which I've used for the teasers for both parts of this tribute. And of course, I would also like to thank my good friend Eric Woods for his continued support of my shows. Finally... I must also thank conductor Pablo Urbina for his contribution to the second part of his tribute. And again, my sincere thanks to the Michael Cameron estate for allowing me to play the exclusive material we heard on this show. I leave you with music from a film from which Michael Cameron left not just a musical legacy, but also a charitable one as well. In 1995, Cameron scored Mr Holland's Opus, directed by Stephen Herrick. He was about a frustrated composer played by Richard Dreyfus, who, while composing his major work, fulfills his life as a music teacher or mentor. Forced to retire due to budget cuts, his students club together to arrange a surprise performance of his opus. Cayman's score was inspired by his own music mentor, Maurice Lorna, giving him the opportunity to pay tribute to all music teachers who communicate their love 
or music to their students. After the film's release, Cameron paid a visit to his old school in New York and was shocked when a teacher showed him a room full of broken musical instruments. Inspired by the movie, and from what he saw, Cameron established with Richard Dreyfus the Mr. Holland's Opus Foundation, who, to this day, raise money for the purchase, repair and distribution of musical instruments to schools and students throughout America. And in 2002, Cameron, Julian Lord Webber, Dane Evelyn Glennie and Sir James Galway set up the Music Education Consortium, which led to £332 million invested into the UK music education. So, to end Cinematic Sound Radio's tribute to Michael Kamen, here is an American symphony from the 1995 film Mr. Holland's Opus. Music composed and conducted by Michael Kamen and performed by the London Metropolitan Orchestra. But before that, I will leave a last word to Pablo Urbina on his view of a legacy of the great Michael Kamen. From me, Jason Drury, until we meet again, is take care and happy listening. Well, I think that we're very lucky that he has left us a great legacy, not just to his music, because that would always speak to endless generations. He was a great musician. He was a great person, and that's always a great way to remember someone. And I think that the other element of his legacy that is very important is perhaps the, the work that he did to create the Mr. Holland Sopos Foundation. And I think that is, that is a great tribute and legacy and one of the best things that, that you can do as a musician. And what a beautiful organization that he created that provides instruments for people all across the United States that don't have access to musical instruments. And I think that Michael created a great thing that that will stay for, for many years, hopefully. Certainly, people like myself in the future generations of music and classical music will, will make sure to treasure organizations like the Mr. Holland Sopos Foundation.
Six and five, wild pickup. Take three. The dialogue line for real is, well, I'll tell you later. Yippee-ki-yay. Thank you for listening to Cinematic Sound Radio. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. Don't forget to check us out at cinematicsound.net on the web, Sound Radio on Twitter, and Cinematic Sound on Facebook. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment right now to rate and review the show. It really helps get the show noticed. And don't forget to tell all your friends about the program as well. We really appreciate the support. And please check out our affiliate at Movie Scores and More Radio at moviescoreradio.com. <laughs>